From Impact Fashion, it's Be Impactful, a show about the women making a difference in their own corners of the world. I'm Rifki Itzkowitz, and on today's show, I talk with a homeschooling mom about how and why she chose to take her kids out of school, why she's not worried about them falling behind, and that time she spent three months on penguins. my schedule, which has been completely upended by the COVID-19 crisis, Ellie Chevalis's day-to-day hasn't changed much at all. Her kids are still going to school as usual. She's still seeing clients as planned, though virtually instead of in person. The reason her life is stable right now when the whole world seems off kilter? Her children are homeschooled. At a time when parents across the country are being forced to keep their kids home, she has some unique insights on how to make it work. I was odd as a child. <laughs> I was one of these weird kids. I, I was sort of, um, I don't know, I would say and do the kind of things that other kids didn't necessarily say or do. And it was, you know, when I was a little kid, I guess it was cute. And then in middle school, it got weird. And I really had to sort of learn social skills in a very intentional way, uh, in a way that I don't know that a lot of other kids had to. And it's funny because in my college essays, my college application essays, I kind of use that theme as, as a journey from the intellectual to the interpersonal, sort of learning how to, I loved reading, I loved books, I loved knowledge seeking, but I didn't really have a great filter. So I, I kind of had to learn how to work with people. And then in my professional life, I ended up totally working with people. You know, there's a little bit of intellectual pursuit in what I do, but uh, it's, it's something that I've had to cultivate and continue to learn and still sometimes have a lot of cringeworthy moments. So you know, here's hoping I don't do that here. But, uh, <laughs> but I mentioned this in my book. Yeah, a few years ago, I was going through some old clutter in the basement. And I found an old essay that I had written in, I think, second grade. I must have been about seven years old. And I wrote, when I grow up, because, you know, kids always get asked, what do you want to do when you grow up? And I said, I want to be a four things, a mom and a teacher and a therapist and a writer. And uh, I, I got like the chills when I read that because I was like, oh my goodness, I've, I've been able to do all those things. And, um, you know, so, so that, that was a, a really nice feeling. And um, you know. I'm kind of impressed that second grade, you knew what a therapist was. My dad's a psychologist. So. Oh, okay. That makes sense. <laughs> <laughs> That'll do it. Yeah. yeah. I was like, did second grade me know what a therapist was? I don't think I'm so. I'm telling you, I was a weird kid. <laughs> <laughs> what were some things that you did to... Like you, you said that you were very intentional about moving from intellectual to interpersonal. What were some of the things that you did to hone those social skills? Well, that's such a good question. Uh, I think that, you know, my parents helped me. When, in middle school, I went through a stage, which I think actually a lot of kids do, uh, where I, I had gone from being sort of like fun and playful and somewhat popular as a little kid to just sort of not really knowing who I was or what to do. And I switched schools a few times. This is also part of my education journey is that I had parents, I have parents, they should live and be well, uh, who very much valued and analyzed and looked at education as an active process rather than something just like, you know, toss your kid into school and assume they're going to do the rest. Um, I was switched schools a few times. And, and so that sort of drove home the value of, of education, but it also, we also moved when I was about nine from a neighborhood where there were a lot of kids to a neighborhood where there were fewer kids my age in my school. There really weren't so many local friends. So I, I started observing and noticing what people said and did that seemed to elicit uh, positive and comfortable responses in other people and really notice and look at the things that I was saying and doing that 
uh, maybe weren't serving me or the people that I was talking to and uh, really having to focus on that as a, as a younger kid, as opposed to some other kids who just sort of like organically just like talk and respond and, and answer and joke around. Like it became something that I kind of made an intentional focus on, you know, kind of noticing and learning and saying, okay, I want to be doing more of that rather than this or emulating the way that person engages with other people from a place of empathy rather than you know trying to take center stage you know it's, it's not it's not something that i've perfected by any means but i think that there are just some people who think about this more than others and some people who need to think about it more than others for sure and what's interesting to me is that when you describe that what you basically did was that you took your intellectual skills and you applied it to interpersonal relationships you know you you had this ability to observe a situation and analyze that had a positive outcome i want to do that as opposed to people who just get it you know, people who just know the things that you're supposed to do, the things that, that you're not supposed to do. You mentioned your education journey, and that's something that I think is really interesting to focus on now, particularly while um, a lot of parents are homeschooling their children now, not because they want to, um, but because of the COVID-19 situation, schools across the country have shut down. And you are someone who homeschools all the time. You are a homeschooling mom. And I'm I want to know how that happens. And I think that a lot of parents listening to this who are at home with their kids, we love our children, but that's a lot, um, are really curious to know, talk me through it. Why? For goodness (laughs) sakes, why? I get that question all the time in varying tones and facial expressions. (laughs) (laughs) I would say there's like sort of like three different types of reactions. You know, there's the like, are you out of your mind? (laughs) What's wrong with you or your children that you're doing this? And I don't think there's anything wrong with any of us. Um, And then I get sometimes, sometimes you get that admiration, like, wow, that's amazing. (laughs) And then there's sometimes the polite, like, oh, that's interesting for you. Stay far away. I don't want to catch whatever it is that you have, (laughs) Um, you know, but, uh, but one reaction that I get all the time, which I've been repeating this because it's just so interesting, uh, is very often the people who are a little bit more diplomatic will say, wow, that's cool that you can do that. I would never be able to do that. And very often my pet answer to that remark is, actually, if you had to, you probably could. Uh, but, you know, it's a choice that you decided not to make. You know, it's, it's actually for a lot of people, it's not a choice. You know, people just have this assumption, children go to school, right? When I was growing up, I don't even know if I knew the word homeschool. And certainly when I was starting out as a parent, that wasn't something that I thought of as a realistic, legitimate option, which is funny because I have always been sort of an out-of-the-box thinker, particularly with education. I, I tell the story in my book also when I was applying to colleges. I had an interview where one of the uh, interviewers asked me, um, you know, why would you want to come to our university? And I said, well, I actually don't really believe in institutionalized learning. I said this as a, see this as an example of, you know, the arrogant, inappropriate social comments that I would make. Um, but, uh, you know, but I, I, I see you do a lot of independent study and I like, you know, a lot of didactic learning and self-teaching. And so really as far back as 12th grade, I had already been thinking out of the box as far as institutionalized education, but homeschooling as, a, as an option wasn't something that I had very seriously considered. Uh, but then once I started sending my children to school and I was a teacher myself, in my community, in our communities, there's an expectation and a communal norm that we do send to private religious schools, yeshivas. And so uh, that's you know, expensive, and it's also a very big decision of you know, which school are you sending to based on your values, based on your life perspectives, you know, based on what kind of peer group you're looking to integrate your children with. It's, it's quite heavily stratified in a lot of big communities. And so this is something that we, it's a, it's a big part of family life, choosing a school for your children, choosing schools for your children. 
And we couldn't afford a single income at that point. And so it was, okay, I had to go teach. And I was a teacher at that time. And my husband had his job. He was a teacher at the time too. And we both uh, moved into different careers since then. And I was, it was like a strange feeling because I would send my children off to school to be educated by other people. I would go off to a school to educate other people's children so that I could pay other people to educate my children in a way that I may or may not have wanted them to be educated. And so because I was in the field and I got to see like the nuts and bolts and the infrastructure of what institutionalized education was like at, at different levels, I was really teaching more at the older level, uh, high school and college level adult education. Uh, but I also was uh, involved in curriculum planning for, for elementary and middle school. So I got to see sort of a cross section of syllabus, I got to really start thinking more critically about what's going on in big education systems and started to look at my own children, look at my own thought process. I was very sad. I remember every time I would have a baby, it would make me so sad to leave my baby with a babysitter so that I could go teach strangers children so that I could pay other strangers to teach my children. The whole thing just seemed a little convoluted when I started to examine it in uh, in reflection with my own values. And obviously I discussed this with my husband and he's really just a good sport. Mm. <laughs> you know, he's, he's more of a, a, a regular thinker, uh, but then I, but, but he's open-minded. And so when we would discuss these things, he's like, well, that actually makes a lot of sense. Uh, so Initially, at the preschool level, my children were in school in early elementary years. They're, they're range in ages right now. They're ages 12 to 20. So, uh, but they've each taken turns. They've not taken turns. At this point, they had all homeschooled, but they've, they've all homeschooled. And it was always their choice. I've never told any of my children, uh, you must be homeschooled. You have to come out of school. That's a choice that a parent can make at the beginning. Like, if you want to homeschool your children from the early years, I would say starting in first grade, that's a parental choice. But I think once a child is old enough to know that he or she is being moved out of school, then it has to be a collaborative decision because uh, a child who's homeschooled against his or her will is going to resent it. But we're talking now about a forced homeschool situation anyway, so I, I probably should stay with that. So, um, but, but anyway, the choice that we made was a process. It was something that I spent a number of years researching. It was sort of inspired by one of my children having uh, their own need to be homeschooled for a finite amount of time. So, and I had already been researching it before. Um, and once we got a taste of it, we were sort of like, wow, this is really nice. This is like even more beautiful than we had thought it was going to be. Uh, another thing that we that gave us the confidence, besides a ton of reading, I did a tremendous amount of reading. I shared on my Instagram um, page, I shared a stack of book titles that I'm going to be sharing a lot more because I think parents are really hungry for good resources on how to manage the situation. Uh, but, but besides for reading, and I continue to read and research both books and online and speaking to other homeschooling parents, um, there was another thing that, that was very helpful, which I think we're coming up on, which was uh, home camping. So again, in our communities, the norm is that children do some kind of structured programming in the summer. In many communities, children are just free and they play and they frolic and that's lovely. But in our communities, most of the children do go to some sort of day camp or sleepaway camp or, or some sort of program. And uh, my children didn't want to go to camp. To camp. And I said to them at the time, like, well, look, you know, school is mandatory, but camp is not mandatory. So you guys can be home. I work part time. So I was able to say, look, for the hours that I'm working, you guys are on your own. You have to entertain yourselves. We weren't toddlers. Um, and, um, and then after that, we'll do activities. And we had a place to swim. We had a place to play ball. And we lived near the beach. And we, we came up. We, we did some learning every day. And we had some free time. And they developed culinary abilities. They got busy in the house and in the kitchen, which is so great. And we had such a wonderful summer that the combination of having that sort of taste of uh, home camping, if you would call it that, in the summer, as well as, uh, as well as having a taste of actual homeschooling with one of our children to begin with, really started to give us the confidence and the inspiration of, wait, what if we, what if we restructured our lives and our jobs and our education so that we can make this our reality? 
So we did a lot of praying and a lot of soul searching, a lot of research and conversations and consultation. Uh, but ultimately, we found that it was a lot less complicated than we thought it would be to get this started and to get it moving. And there was a lot of sort of like trial and error. It's a continual organic process of figuring out what's going to work for each of the children, for each of their subjects, for, for, for each of the parents and, you know, our, our scheduling and professional and emotional needs, um, everybody's needs that have to be taken into consideration. But overall, like we all agree, all the children and my husband, and I all agree, like we never, like the only regret we have is like, why did we start this sooner? Um, so, you know, so I, I, I like to be able to be, I know that it's different for the families who are in this situation right now because they didn't have the sort of time to ease into it and prepare and research the way we did, but they could still benefit from the, the families like us who did have the time to do all this preparation. And we have been trying very hard to, I've been writing and speaking and sharing a lot more about our homeschooling experience uh, because it was, like you said, by choice, as opposed to something that was forced upon us. And even, you know, I, I mentioned to a couple of friends and my husband, like, I would not be surprised if we see a big uptick in the number of voluntary homeschoolers after all the dust settles from the COVID-19 crisis. Because while I'm sure the majority of families are going to be so thrilled and so happy to be able to send their children back to teachers to do this work for them, I'm, I would imagine that there will be a nice number of families who develop systems and routines uh, and creativity that uh, that they really start to I don't fall in love with is a is a strong way of putting it, but really start to appreciate and enjoy. I'm I'm, I'm speaking, you know, kind of. Uh, I, I keep going. Please feel free to interrupt. No, me. <laughs> just listen. I am someone who loves to soak up information on topics that I know nothing about, and I certainly know nothing about homeschooling. And you are like a well of information. One of the words <laughs> that you keep using is you keep saying things like it's it's really beautiful, it's really fulfilling. Those are the words that I keep hearing you saying again and again. What about homeschooling do you find beautiful? Okay, that's such a good question. Thanks. Uh, you know, <laughs> so. There is a, there's, there's a rabbi, well, there was a rabbi, uh, but he, was, he was called the Dubna Magid, and he used to speak in parables. He used to teach in, uh, in analogy and metaphor. And one of the things that he said that I learned many years ago, but really stuck with me, he said, just like food is so much more tasty and enjoyable to someone who's hungry, to someone who has an appetite, likewise, knowledge is more enjoyable to someone who has a question, someone who has curiosity. So when there are two sort of reasons that people will homeschool, like categories of reasons, there are probably dozens of personal reasons, but one is because there's a dissatisfaction with the general school system. I'm not going to focus so much on that right now because that's not the reason why anybody suddenly became a homeschooler in the last month. So, um, you know, that's, that's one reason. But another reason is because of the benefits and the advantages of a customized, lear learning, progr customized learning program. So for example, your industry is fashion, right? Mm -hmm. And so you create beautiful clothing for people to wear. But if you were going to, uh, if someone came to you and said, I am a, a bride, or I am going to be honored at some huge gala, right? And I need some, some uh, dress to be custom made to my specifications, my taste, my coloring, my measurements, whatever it is, right? So that would be a more sort of like exclusive and tailor-made job than trying to create a design that's going to like look nice on a lot of people. Yeah, right? sure. I do custom designs and I approach that completely differently. The first thing that it starts with is a consult with the client. And it's, exactly. and it's, you tell me what you need. We start with the event. We start with if the, if it's a, a wedding, then is there a specific color that the bridal party is sticking to? All of those details are things that we start with from the beginning. 
Okay, so that's exactly a perfect metaphor for what homeschooling is like, right? You can buy a dress off the rack and that's fine, right? If it's a nice dress and if it works for you, right? But if something is really special and really important, you're gonna wanna sit down and have a consult and figure out the nuances and the hues and the tones and the color and mood and the style and the measurements, right? You get to do that when you're educating your own child. Right. If you send your kid to a school, I once heard somebody say that um, that prisoners in uh, incarcerated people, right, have more freedom than your average nine year old in school. Right. They have to sit for hours at a time on a chair. They have to ask permission to use the restroom. Right. They're being told what to think, what to do, when to write, when to put their pen down, when they're allowed to speak. Right. There's not a tremendous amount of freedom. Right. And this is something we've all just grown accustomed to because it's a, a societal norm. But right now, Families have the opportunity to customize education and learning for their children, which is a wonderful thing. So the way, same way you sit down and you have a consult with your client who wants a custom dress, I sit down uh, every August, we sit down with each of our children and we say, okay, um, what do you want to learn this year? How do you want to learn it this year, right? Do you enjoy textbooks and workbooks? Do you want to do um, virtual online classes? Do you want interactive? Do you want uh, live tutelage? Um, are there subjects we want? One of my kids once spent three months studying penguins, right? You can't do that in school, right? Just because you got excited about penguins, the whole class isn't going to learn penguins. Okay, right? but I, here's my question on that. So your sure. kid spends three months learning about penguins. Yeah. Does that mean that, that, you know, there's only a certain number of hours in the day? There's only a certain number of time in the school day. Yeah. I'm sure that you have set hours when they're in school, quote unquote. Um, then do you have set hours when they're in school? We actually don't. Some families do. Um, okay. But, but we have moved at, we, at the beginning, we were pretty structured. We would come up with schedules and lesson plans and um, sort of like an hourly routine of what we wanted to do and, a, and curricula of specifically what we wanted to accomplish. And that was, I think, due to our own inexperience and insecurities and the fact that the kids were very young and we wanted to have the option to stream them back into school and know that they were not only up to par with their peers, but we almost felt like we had to prove like they always had to be ahead of the curve. Um, okay, know, that makes sense to me. Going right. back to the penguins for a minute. Sure, so your sure. kid spends three months learning about penguins. Yeah, well, not me only penguins, just that was their science. Now, okay, but that is right. at the cost of other science things that- Well, that, you would think that, right? But well, yeah. Yeah, but if you look at the science curricula for everything from preschool through eighth grade, it's totally unstandardized, right? So if you go to a third grade classroom in one school or in one community, they're not going to be necessarily learning the same thing as a third grade classroom in another community. And not only that, but if you were to go and take a test from a sixth grade classroom, right, in almost any subject, right? Sixth grade is not a very high level, it's not so advanced, right? right. But probably you and I would not be able to pass most of the, uh, yeah, I, I remember one of my friends was like, my, my daughter has to write an essay on ziggurats. And I was just like- On what? Hmm ziggurats <laughs> look it up <laughs> okay like a, a little piece of you know of random history trivia right the book reports i just recently found i don't throw things away very well i just recently found like a five-page book report that i had to write on the witch of blackberry pond blackberry pond you know so what schools do is they hyper focus on random specific trivia which also people tend to forget and what we want to do at the early years is we don't really necessarily need to cram their heads with specific pieces of information because what they're really going to need to know by the time they launch into adulthood is stuff that they're going to pick up along the way anyway. So let's say second grade biology and seventh grade biology are anyway going to re get reviewed in ninth grade biology, right? So if your right. kid is bored or confused by an endoplasmic reticulum when they're eight years old, so all that's going to do when they're, if they're fascinated by it, then that's really nice and that's really great. But if they're bored of it or confused by it, then when it comes to ninth grade and they learn about organelles, you're going to be like, 
oh, that's that thing that I don't understand. And they've already labeled themselves as like, I'm not good at biology. I'm not good at science. So to, for a homeschool, a creative homeschooling family, what we want to do in the early years is just to foster and encourage a love of learning and a curiosity of learning. So what we do is we take the basic curriculum, we take like a limited, we buy a textbook, we buy a workbook, or we go on a website, they have um, you know, time for learning, academystudy.com. There are tons of free or low cost websites where your kid can do in an hour or two a day, the basic, basic amount of learning that an average public school or even yeshiva student is going to be covering. I once read, and this is on average, but I once read that it takes about 12 minutes of one-on-one -on -one learning to cover 40 to 45 minutes of classroom learning. That because, makes sense to me. Right, because you spend a lot of time quieting down the class and taking questions that not everybody needs to know the answer to, and, right, and the dismissal and the wrestling of the papers and handing out assignments. So when you trim the, the fat off of like a regular classroom learning, really what it comes down to is, you know, here's the information. Now, when children, and, and by the way, these stories about the penguins is, a, is, a, is an exaggerated sort of example. We don't usually spend that much time on something so minute. But what it did was it gave that kid a sense of like, hey, now I like science. And so then when there were science books out on the coffee table or science programs that were, we started to watch. So she has the confidence of like, oh, I'm good at this stuff. I like this stuff. This stuff interests me, you know? And, uh, and, and so, you know, that's, that's, I guess, like, what, what was that? remind me what the original question was that prompted that. Uh, well, it's, it, to, to me, it's really about holes in the kid's knowledge, right? Like I get right. how a structured system that's yeah. been laid out, you know, a, a first to eighth grade curriculum yeah. can potentially cannot doesn't work for everyone I get that, yeah. that like the one size fits all approach might not actually work but yeah. at the same time having things laid out from first to eighth grade means that you know we're covering x y and z topics you know we're not just covering penguins we're going to talk right. about lions and tigers and cheetahs and whatever else there is like all <laughs> having if you're not right. working within that structured system do you worry about your kids not you know missing out on things do you worry about gaps in your kids knowledge so I did at the beginning until I learned, you know, I was talking to uh, an administrator, you know, most, most uh, educators, brick and mortar school educators, administrators, teachers, and principals, they tend to be a little suspicious of homeschooling families. And whenever my kids have interviewed at schools, it was always fun to watch the interviewer or the principal, the principal go from like skeptical to like, okay, when can your kid come? Like they, they you know, thank God, they really, they, they tend to outperform their peers. Um, but what you'll realize is if there's not really a standardized curriculum from first through eighth grade, really from first through, or let's say five-year-olds through like third or fourth grade, they have their basic reading and arithmetic skills, which, the, which kids are going to pick up for the most part, regardless, right? We need to teach kids how to read and do basic, you know, math, multiplication, division, addition, subtraction, uh, you know, order of operations, fractions, decimals. But that's probably only a few years worth of information. By the time a kid hits sixth or seventh grade, they have their basic functional knowledge that will allow them to access all the rest of the knowledge. When, we, when you talk about potential gaps or holes in kids' knowledge base, there's an assumption that there is a standardized curriculum across the world or across the country that all of the fourth graders are covering. It's not really like that. And, so, and, and there's also a tremendous amount of spiraling, there's repetition. So if you look at a third grade math book and a fifth grade math book, a lot of those pages are completely interchangeable because there's so much review and there's so much sort of building on itself. So if you don't catch it the first time around, you can catch it the next time around. Right. But what I mean is that even yeah. if there's not like a standard fourth grade curriculum, let's say, yeah. there is, if assuming that your kid stays in the same school and yeah. 
I almost see a benefit to the continued repetition because some people are not going to catch it the first time. Oh, it is, if, it is beneficial. Yeah, 100%. Right. It even, is. Yeah. yeah, And also, even if you do catch it the first time, it's good to go over things that- Review is you know, imperative. Sure. Right. Like that's, yeah. that's just part of it. But also, yeah. if you stay in the same school, then presumably that school has a curriculum built out for every grade that if there's, let's say I'm making up a number, but let's say there's- yeah. 50 things that by the time you finish eighth grade, you need to know how to do those 50 things. They're going to make sure that you cover things one through 10 in first grade, 10 through 27 in second grade. Like they have their built out program. So do you work with a similar built out program with your kids in homeschool or is it all self-guided? Yes and no. I mean, there are complete um, unschoolers and unschoolers don't. They will allow their children to learn completely organically. Uh, we don't completely unschool. We do for, sort of an, an unstructured regular schooling. I never heard that term unschool. What does that un- mean? Unschooling is is totally totally child guided learning. Oh, okay. Okay. So that based on what the kid that would be, let's say, if all your kid ever wants to study is penguins, then your kid will only ever study penguins. And right? they will not and, know anything else. They will never do any math. Um, well, you know, again, it depends on the family, but they're going to pick up math when they have to learn how to bake and when they have to, you know, when they, they right. pick or when they go shopping or they'll learn everything sort of on the job. And very often those are the kids who become like the world experts in penguins. You know, the, right. a lot of the, the brilliant, you know, um, researchers, authors, inventors, artists, and musicians were homeschooled. Some of them were unschooled and many of them hyper-specialized in their gifts in their area of expertise and, and joy. And they became sort of like the world geniuses in those things, right? That's not specifically what I'm looking to do for my children. But what we do try to do is offer them the opportunity to concentrate on and major in, so to speak, and focus on the areas of learning that interest them the most. So yes, there are some schools that are so streamlined and are so organized that they have a, uh, an incremental step-by-step of, you know, the first 10 skills or bites of knowledge happen in grade one and grade two, grade two, you know, and it builds up like that. Most schools are not that organized, not that streamlined, and not that successful at imparting and reinforcing in such a way that the kids preserve it, sustain it, remember it, and certainly not enjoy it. If you ask the majority of kids, did you love school? Most kids are not going to say, I loved and remember everything I learned. I remember when um, one of my kids wanted to go, uh, wanted to try out going to high school. So we were talking to the principal and I give this man a lot of credit. He said, principal, he said to me, he said, you know, so do you test your kids? And I said, not really. I don't give them tests. So he said, well, then how do you know if they're retaining the knowledge that they're learning? And I said, and I said, well, you know, um, when you when you give a kid a test, right? Let's say uh, in in December of tenth grade, right? How fast do they forget the material that they? It, let's say a kid got a ninety five on that test or a hundred on that test, right? How likely are they to be able to pass that test twelve months later? So he smiled. I said, how likely are you, the principal, to be able to pass that test without studying for it beforehand? So he laughed. And I said, you have, to, you have teachers. These are all people in education who value education, right? If you would take a, an English lit teacher and ask him to take, a, uh, to take an exam that the physics teacher created, right? How likely is he to pass that test? So he starts cracking up. I said, the only difference between the way I do education and you do education is that you uh, create a format so that you can quantify exactly what information the children are going to promptly forget tomorrow, (laughs) right? (laughs) And when you do education in a way that caters to the curiosity, to the questions, to the organic learning, to the, hey, I always wondered why kind of learning, then children tend to assimilate the information that they're learning because it's coming from that place of hunger, of curiosity, of like, oh, I really want to know about this. And they can be experiential and intentional about it. And most of us will remember, so I was a grammar nerd, right? I really like grammar. 
And I know a lot about parts of speech and participles and language that most people studied in elementary and high school. I actually studied in college too. I majored in abstract linguistics that the vast majority of people either never learned or if they learned it, they promptly forgot it because it's dry and boring and irrelevant and not necessary to their lifestyle. Right. So right. My belief is that the majority of people don't need to be learning that at all because the people who love language, they need to know basic parts of speech, basic sentence structure to be human literate people so they can write a document, write an article, write an email and sound reasonably literate. But you have those skills. If you're a, a relatively bright fifth or sixth grader, you can do that. Right. And, right. and I, by the way, I feel the same way about vocabulary. We, we haven't done vocabulary lessons in years because I'm a reasonably eloquent adult and I speak to my children in reasonably articulate English. <laughs> and so right. that's how they pick up language. P -p children pick up so much language from the age of zero to three or four. That's when they pick up the most vocabulary. They haven't picked up a single vocabulary book. The way they learn that vocabulary is through the course of human dialogue. And so I believe that most learning takes place in real time, like on the job learning. And so are there gaps in my children's knowledge? Probably not any more than there are in any child's knowledge, right? So that when you are interested, so you said you're an artist, right? You enjoyed fashion, you enjoyed creativity. I'm guessing right. there were probably one or two subjects in school that you didn't like at all, right? Math. Or maybe math. Okay, math. I don't like math. <laughs> Which is ironic because it's probably one of the subjects that I used the most frequently now. <laughs> okay, but have logarithms ever come up in your life? They have, have not. You, have you so katoa? Have you ever needed to grasp a parabola? No, but it's fun to say. <laughs> What? Sokotoa? I, I joke about this. I'm like, you know, I have a good life. It hasn't come up. <laughs> but, you know, the, the majority of math that I learned past seventh grade, I only needed to know when the system needed to torture my children into learning those things. So I had to reteach it to myself so I could teach it to them. That was really the only reason. So then people will say, well, what if your child does want to become an engineer or a mathematician or an actuary? Well, for those children, what we can do is the same thing that Europe and Israel does, which is by the time you're 13, 14 years old, you know pretty much what you like to learn, what you enjoy, what you're very good at, and you can start majoring in those things. And then you, the kids who are really good at math and love it can take really strong concentration classes and extracurriculars and uh, internships in the areas that they're interested in. And they don't have to waste their time memorizing Shakespearean sonnets. And the kids who love literature or journalism or art can hyper-focus in the, in the areas that are interesting to them that they're probably gonna go into professionally or that they're going to use for their, their creativity and their joy. So, you know, homeschooling just kind of allows us to get a jump start on that. Most grown-ups are not well-rounded the way we expect children to be, right? We don't have like That's a true. standardized learning program. Most of us have our areas of expertise and our areas of ignorance, and we're okay with that because we don't expect all adults to know all the same things and perform the same way and sit passively inhaling information that someone else is telling them. We know that we're going to gravitate towards our own gifts. And, you know, my belief is that we can actually start allowing children to do that from a much younger, younger, younger stage as well. Yeah, that, I guess that makes sense to me. I mean, it's still not something that I would do, but it makes sense to me sure. in a, on a theoretical level. I want to look at this from a little bit of a different angle, and that's the social angle. If your kids are homeschooled, yeah. that presumably they spend a lot of time with each other and not so much time with other people's kids. And do you worry about them having friends? How do they make friends? Like, how does all of that work? It's funny. My husband always laughs though when he tells people that our kids are homeschooled. That's actually the first question. Nobody really, very few people, except educators, very few people say, well, how do you know what to teach them? People sort of intuitively know that it's not really that hard to impart information, but people worry uh, about, about the social. So I, I can only say how it worked for our family, because I think that that really is a very serious responsibility on the parents of a homeschooling family. So if you are the parents of children who are homeschooling, it's really upon you, especially when the children are young, to make sure they have social outlets. 
So for example, one of my children is very serious about ballet. She goes to ballet three times a week. So most of her socializing happens in her ballet classes and she, most of her friends come from there. We also have, my kids started out in schools. So it was kind of easy for us. We were able to just sort of maintain and preserve the relationships that they already had in place from school and make sure that they were having play dates, getting together on weekends. Um, we do allow our children to be on devices. So they have FaceTime calls all the time. They get together with friends. Um, my kids are also pretty close in age, which is just fortunate. You know, that's not something that people can necessarily, uh, you know, know or plan, but they're, they're each about to use the part. So we have the girls are younger and the boys are older. So they even cross socialize with each other's friends. One of my kids, when we, she, she was a little bit on the older side of, of when we started homeschooling. And she said that her social life was better after she left school because when she was in school, she had to choose which lunch table she wanted to sit at. She had to choose, well, if I'm best friends with her, then somebody else isn't going to be best friends with me. And there's like a lot of elementary and middle school politics that they had to navigate, not to mention bullying and, you know, other things that come up in school that are, you know, that can be, can be traumatizing for children. Once, once she left school, she was free to sort of call and get together with and hang out with as many kids as she wanted based on her tastes and her desires. So that worked out really well. I'm not going to say that it's perfect, that it's easy, um, but I don't think it's ever, like I said before, I was in school my whole life as a kid and I went through a period of social struggling. So I think that's sort of part of growing up for a lot of kids. And for us, and I'm saying specifically for us, because every family has its own journey, for us that hasn't proven to be a major issue associated with homeschooling. It's we, The children have been, you know, thank God, able to maintain friendships, uh, they, you know, they, they socialize every evening. And if you think about it also, kids in school, they don't spend a tremendous amount of time socializing, right? They get to school, they say right. hi to their friends, then they sit in a chair and have to sit quietly, quietly, quietly. They have a 15 minute recess, that social time, right? Then quiet, 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 then lunch, which is honestly usually really too noisy for good socializing. They're sitting in a cafeteria, there's food growing, you know, it's, it's a little more chaotic then quiet, quiet, another 15 minute recess, right? So for that, most kids are gonna be doing their primary socializing in their extracurriculars, right? Their sports teams and their arts and their, uh, and their, ev and their evening and, and uh, weekend activities. So that's something that we've always availed ourselves of, and, of ourselves of. And so, and when we, if we ever, whenever we kind of felt like our kids needed a new infusion in friends, we could always put them in a summer program, which we've done here and there. And that was always a really nice way to pick up more friends. Yeah, I guess that makes sense to me. Yeah. The how does this affect your job? Because for you're, you're a teacher now, you know, you, I know you were a teacher before, but you have yeah. to run, you got to run the, you got to run the school, you know, you got to yeah. run whatever it is that the, you, ah, I can't wrap my brain around this. Okay. Hold on. <laughs> Let me try to articulate this better. If you are homeschooling, that effectively makes you a full-time teacher, Right. Mm, I, I'm going to let you finish your thought. I don't know if I would totally agree with that, but yeah. Okay. So if you're home, in that. my brain, yeah. if you are homeschooling, that means that you as the parent are the teacher that okay. becomes your full-time job. So does that mean that you just don't, I know, I know that you do work. So I'm just curious how that happens, like how that comes together, because it seems like all of your time would be spent with your kids. Okay. So Okay, number one, not every homeschooling family and not, not every homeschooling family has the parent as a full-time educator. So there are homeschool families where they bring in tutors. We have not done a tremendous amount of that. We did it a little bit here and there where we had, let's say, one kid who wanted for one subject or whatever, but, for, but the, it is possible to do that. A lot of students can do online schooling. Now, obviously, a six, seven-year-old child is not going to generally be autonomous enough to do online schooling. My kids are a little bit older. Um, and a lot of, and the goal, at least for our family, is that for the children to become autodidactic. So one of the tenets of certain- What does that word mean? 
auto means self, didactic means learning. So okay. that they, they, they can teach themselves. So for example, um, when the kids, let's say one of the kids was little, we would sit with her science book and read through a unit and have conversations and answer the questions together at the end and maybe do like a hands-on project to illustrate and to watch a video on it. Just, so that was something that required a lot of uh, involvement on the part of a parent. As they get a little bit older and they're more autonomous and independent and able to sort of read and answer the questions and do these um, exercises at the end of the unit by themselves, they can sort of just do that and then show it to me and I'll be like, all right, great job. That's terrific. You know, and we can sort of just check in with each other as opposed to me having to facilitate the entire thing. And in fact, part of the beauty of homeschooling is that if the parent or the teacher becomes more of a learning facilitator than a learning dictator. You know, I'm not just sitting here spitting information into your ear and making you spit it back to me, but rather I'm providing the materials, the books, the workbooks, the projects, the creative uh, outlets, the websites, uh, and the programs for you to be able to access this information yourself. Like, for example, right now, if I wanted to learn Mandarin Chinese, right, as an adult, or I wanted to learn how to cook a certain type of recipe, and I don't know how to do that kind of cooking, right, I wouldn't, like, go to a school. I wouldn't go hire a teacher. I would go online, or I would order a book, and I would teach myself the new skill or new information, right? And so my belief, our belief, a lot of our beliefs, is that once a child has passed a certain critical age for language acquisition, right, seven, eight years old, then children can be educated to educate themselves. And they feel so good about themselves when they can do this. They feel really, really wonderful. So I remember a few years ago, I had been a, I had been a teacher. I was teaching at the high school, college, and adult level. I enjoyed it a lot, but I really wanted more autonomy in terms of my own scheduling. I wanted to work for myself. There were aspects of institutionalized education that I didn't love. And my husband had pointed out that the part I loved best about the teaching was the relationships, you know, getting to know people, being able to be a resource for people personally more so than just academically. And so he's like, why don't you go back to school? You can be a therapist. You can carve your own hours. I'm like, you know what? That's a good idea. So I did. And at, I remember I was just sitting, we were on vacation. I was sitting in Florida and I was reading this book on time management. And I had been fantasizing about either building my career as a, as a therapist, building my practice, or trying to work with, uh, trying to offer my children to homeschool, you know, for real, you know, to, to let everybody homeschool. I'm like, I have to make a choice. I either can focus on my career or I can homeschool the family, but I can't do both. And I had this epiphany while I was reading this book. The writer's name is Laura Vanderkam. I don't usually speak in such superlative ways, but I would say that her writing literally changed my life. I was introduced to her by a client of mine and um, re realizing and learning how being more structured and mindful about how I utilize my own time allowed me the possibility to do all the things that I wanted to do. So people say you can't have it all. And sometimes you can't, but in this case, what I do, the way I structure my routine is I do two or three sessions in the morning, usually eight, nine, and 10 a.m., right? The children get up between, they're supposed to get up between nine and 10. Mm. And, uh, and at this point, they can uh, pray and prepare their own breakfast and do some basic chores by themselves. They have some independent learning that they do by themselves. And this is going back a few years when I was much more involved in the day-to-day -day, uh, nitty-gritty of their learning. As they get older, they're much more independent about it. But by 11, I would come out and we would do our group learning, then we would break off into individual learning. So let's say from 11 to three or four was our designated schooling time. Then from three or four, we would usually try to get out and do something maybe physical. We like to do a lot of, uh, you know, they'd like to go ice skating. We homeschoolers always get everything to ourselves. The whole mm. ice skating right to ourselves, the library, you know, nobody's around during the day. So that's always fun. Um, and then in the evening, we, then we had regular family after school things, you know, like running errands and uh, making dinner. Um, and then in the evening, I would do another two or three sessions. So let's say 7, 8, and 9 p.m. And the kids were socializing at that point. They were hanging out with friends and they were playing games. And, um, you know, so it was a routine where I could see about four to six clients a day, six days a week, 
And, um, and that was about the caseload that I was looking for anyway. I wasn't looking for a 40 plus hour work week when I had little kids, even if they were in school. And so, um, so I, it, was, it was really like a dream come true to figure out that I could build a practice, have time to write, have time to nurture my own family. I don't have to outsource educating and raising my family. I could do it myself. And, uh, and, and, and thank God they get along really well and they feel beautiful relationships with each other, which is another benefit of homeschooling. Another thing that's been really fantastic for our family is because both my husband and I segue from working uh, as employees to becoming self-employed uh, and because we're not tied down to any schedule of uh, any scholastic schedule as we have begun traveling. Some people call that world schooling. So they do a lot of learning on the go. And so they have their own suitcases and their own system of packing up and we go and we see, you know, different places in the world and we can, you know, if we're getting cold, we can just sit down to Florida for a little bit. And that's, that's also been a, a wonderful luxury that's, that homeschooling has afforded us in this lifestyle. That actually sounds really great to be able to just pick up and travel whenever and not worry about when the kids have off from school or when you have off from a job. Sounds like a, that sounds very cool. I will put that out there. <laughs> right, like, like we keep saying, um, we are recording this actually very close to when it will be released, which is unusual. I'm bumping my whole schedule um, because I want this to get out now when people need it. Um, and it is the end of March. Um, we are currently in the middle of a global pandemic. And I can't believe I just said that. Like, what is the world coming to? Um, yeah. And I have two questions. How do you teach your kids about something like that? Because, you know, it's something that I think all parents are kind of struggling with. Like, how do we tell our kids what the coronavirus is and how to protect themselves and all of that? But you are both parent and teacher. So yes. how did, like, how do you, how do you approach that? And I'm a mental health professional. So you can imagine how much my phone is ringing off. <laughs> yeah. Oh, you must, you are busy. <laughs> um, yeah. So I, I think that this is another benefit of knowing your children well and their educational needs and learning styles, which is that, um, you know, there are some children who are more anxious and worry by nature, and those children need more reassurance. There are some children who are more cavalier, more flippant, and need to, you to teach them to take it more seriously. No, you really do need to be washing your hands. No, you really can't go to the neighbor's house constantly. Like, you know, and, and so uh, the same way when you're, let's say, giving your children any moral um, feedback, there are kids that you need to come on a little more strongly because they're not, they're not going to take it seriously otherwise. And there are kids that you have to tread very gently because they're very sensitive and they're going to burst into tears if they feel hyper-criticized. So we need to take their, our child's psychological makeup into account and also ages, right? Where you're not going to give the level of detail and uh, severity to a six-year-old that you would to a 16-year-old. But I think I've always been a fan, and this is across the board. I have a, I have a course called Sacred Not Secret on sexuality education. And that is a, a, a very big advocacy project that I've been working on over the last number of years about being honest and open and biologically accurate with children about, uh, about sexuality. And I think that you can apply the same idea here, which is that kids deserve to know the truth. And what's tricky about that is that not the gory, graphic, scary version of the truth, but the basic factual information. And what's, what's tricky about that is that we don't really have all the information. Uh, we, we are figuring out as we go along, but that's also a really good thing to be able to impart to kids and say, look, there's a sickness that's going around. It's very catchy, just like, you know, sometimes when your friends get the flu, other people will get the flu or people will get a stomach virus and then their, their siblings will get a stomach virus, right? But the doctors and the government are telling us that in order to make less people get sick, we're going to try to stay inside our houses. We're going to wash our hands in a specific way. We're going to try to limit the transmission of germs. And you kind of just tell them this straight up. If they say, are people dying? You could say, yeah, people die every day of all different reasons, right? 
are we going to die? Well, nobody knows when we're going to die, but you know, we're young and healthy and we pray and we hope, but you know, we don't have any reason to expect that we're going to die right now. We just try to take good care of ourselves and we try to do the best we can. And then, you know, we have faith, you know, we're faith-based families and that really helps a lot. So we want to temper our realism and accuracy with reassurance. We try not to be too alarmist or too overwhelmed in front of the children. Um, and, uh, and whether, you know, you're homeschooling, you know, in general or just parenting and homeschooling isn't your thing. Uh, I think learning how to be straight up and honest with children and watch their facial expressions, watch their reactions, figure out like how they're interpreting, internalizing, processing the information will allow us to give them the kind of feedback if they need reassurance, like a hug or, or like, you know, but it's, it's okay. We're going to, you know, we're going to try the best we can to stay safe and healthy. We're going to follow all the rules and then we hope for the best. We have plenty of food and toilet paper and, <laughs> you know, um, you know, I think that, you know, that that's really the way to go, you know, a balance of honesty, realism, you know, imparting the importance of following certain rules and protocols to keep everybody as safe uh, and, and as well as we can. If you're a faith-based family, you know, prayer and faith are, are wonderful modalities, values, and beliefs and tools to give over to children at a time like this. Um, you know, and, and honesty about, the, about that, that we don't entirely know what's going on. We never have control over everything. And that's something that's good for both adults and children to, to get comfortable with. That makes sense to me. I get that. Yeah. Okay. And then my second part of that question was, we're, a lot of people are homeschooling now and they don't want to be. So yeah. if you could give, let's say, three tips to someone who is in a forced homeschool situation now, yeah. what, what would you say? Take all of our panicking parents and, and bring them down two notches. Okay. What, what would you say to them? Okay, before we get to that, I realized that I had started telling this story before and anyone who's like the kind of person who's like, wait, you started the story and you didn't finish it, it's going to be annoyed. So I want to finish that story. Please do. <laughs> so um, I had mentioned that we, uh, my son applied to uh, a high school and this high school principal um, asked me about how we do our homeschooling and he's you know, an educated, um, experienced principal. And um, I told him that our routine and how we, I went through all the subjects and how he kept up to par with each of the subjects. And he looks at me and he goes, so now my only question for you is why on earth would you send him here? Like you've created in your home what every educator dreams of doing, a completely tailor-made, customized education plan for the child's emotional, intellectual, psychological, and scholastic needs. Why on earth? And you do it like for a fraction of the cost of what you would pay for a YouTube high school. Why would you stop this at all? Um, and uh, which I thought was like super you know, impressive that he was able to just say that without any you know, sort of ego. And then I said, look, the one thing you can give him that we can't give him is sports teams. <laughs> we didn't have sports teams locally for that particular kid at that particular age. There are some neighborhoods and communities where you can have that. But, um, you know, he wanted his, his older brother was going abroad and he wanted, uh, you know, he wanted more um, you know, being people. He needed a new tennis partner, basically. Um, anyway, um, so that was the end of that story. So three tips. Okay. So, you know, it, it's hard to distill it down into just three because we're dealing with such a wide cross-section of ages. But I think that the first thing I would say to parents who are overwhelmed and sort of like resisting this reality is to number one, take a deep breath, right? And cut yourself some slack, right? Right now in particular, in the midst of this global crisis, the academic and scholastic keeping up or progress or, or education is very low on the totem pole of a child's essential needs right now. Right now, the primary focus for everyone needs to be medical and physical safety and well-being, 
right? We need to focus on the, the, uh, the social distancing, following the quarantining rules that are being told to us by, you know, the people who are in the know and researching what we need to do, um, dealing with the psychological and emotional and social ramifications that come with all these very, uh, very new changes, very difficult changes, right? And that includes the family relationships, managing feelings, managing arguing, bickering, the th things that come up in family life that will become sort of a, a petri dish of our own pathologies, right? So, <laughs> I think number one, medical and physical safety has to be number one priority, followed up by a close number two, psychological, emotional, interpersonal safety and, uh, and well-being is, 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 is super important. Okay. And then part of that sort of mushrooms into um, creativity, curiosity, happiness, especially for the parents who are like, well, I'm not a teacher. I'm not an educator. I don't have the material. I don't have the syllabus. I don't have the experience or the training or the background, which by the way, most private school teachers don't have either. But um, <laughs> side point. Yeah, no, most private schools in, in communities like mine and probably yours are, are people who just sort of like applied for a job and learned on the job, which is what, you know, parenting is as well. Um, you know, so just sort of like set up those values, those priorities and say, okay, what is most important to us? Medical and psychological well-being. Then also the next value is function, right? We want the house to function. So if that means that they need to be allowed a little bit more screen time, watching, viewing, whatever materials you let, you're not like completely unfiltered watching, obviously you want it to be like age appropriate and not too scary and graphic or, but you know, things that are even not necessarily the most educational, right? If it's harmless entertainment, but it gives you peace of mind. It allows you to speak to your partner and maintain your, your marital relationship healthy. That's super important. If, if letting one kid watch some cartoons so you can spend time focusing on another child's uh, you know, learning or needs that that's okay for now. You know, it's not something that I over, over the broad picture really endorse. I like kids to get, you know, a, a lot of outdoor time, a lot of out of the house time, but we, you have to work with what we have right now. Right. So particularly you know, so when the best thing that you can be doing is staying inside. We have not... to be inside, you know, you have a backyard, right. you're fortunate, but other than that, you have to be inside. So, so, you know, we, I think that we're going to be relying a lot more on screens than we ever have endorsed before. So going easy with that, going easy with the junk food rules, like in general, in, you know, it's not good for kids to have a ton of, of, you know, unstructured junk food because, you know, they get all wired and sugary, whatever. And it's still, you know, I think it's still a great idea to make sure to cut up lots of fruits and vegetables and have options for healthy food so that the kids uh, can, you know, stay as healthy and strong as possible. But, but also like, don't drive yourself nuts. If, you know, giving them a couple of cookies will, you know, be a nice treat and a nice diversion, it's, it's fine. Like, like, right. you know, kind of relax. They'll survive the potato the, chip. Yeah. Yeah. I think, you know, to be less rigid about certain like guilty pleasures that some families tend to be stricter about it now is not the time to clamp down on that stuff because everybody's struggling, everybody's suffering, you know, kind of pick your battles. Um, and uh, one, one thing that I wrote about uh, in my blog, oh, I want to tell you about the blog because I've been doing a ton of blogging lately to the point where I think I just want to create an email list because it's just too much writing and speaking and, you know, mm. I want to be able to just kind of like get it out in one place to people who want it rather than throwing it into the internet. Um, so um, what, what I talked about is doing family meetings. Now, if you have a one-year-old and a three-year-old, this isn't going to be very useful, but if right. you you know, if you have kids that are old enough to participate, and that could be as young as, you know, four or five years old, um, and certainly older, hold a family meeting ASAP, sit down with pens and paper and a whiteboard, if you have one, put out some snacks and just say, okay, guys, you know, we're all new at this. Everybody write down your thoughts. We're going to take turns speaking. We're going to take turns sharing. And we're going to discuss what people are thinking, what people are requesting, what people are needing. And um, children feel very loved and attended to and validated when we listen to them and paraphrase what they're telling us, even if we're not going to grant their requests. So that's a really great way to teach communication, to teach moral values. You know, this is a time really to focus on personhood rather than academics. I've been doing a tremendous amount of writing about 
how uh, you know most people are going to forget the majority of what they learned academically. But what we're really hoping to do, even without a global crisis, is to launch decent human beings into the world who are going to have integrity, who are going to be honest, who are going to know how to talk to other human beings, who are going to engage in adding value and being philanthropic, who can be self-sufficient financially, right? So, so these are really the skills that we have the opportunity to focus on right now. Uh, and, and, and just to give it some time, you know, it looks like we're going to be in this for a while. It's not like a couple of weeks, you know, it looks like, like the prediction is that this is going to be going on for a number of months. So the same way it took my family and most homeschooling families time to establish routines and systems and knowledge so that we could get better at it and figure out what, what would work well for our family and our individual children and our individual uh, schedule and routines and budget and, and, and timelines. So that, that's something that people should give themselves the gift of patience and grace. Um, and really focus primarily on, you know, medical, psychological well-being and being as kind and as patient as possible with children who are probably like scared and, and this, you know, discombobulated, um, you know, and, and really. They're out of their normal routine just as much totally. as you are. Exactly. Yeah, more so even because we at least have an understanding, you know, for them, they're like, is this ever going to stop? You know, they don't necessarily know. Right. You know, so I think that, like, you know, that makes sense. You've mentioned yeah. a lot of your, of your previous project projects. You've mentioned your book, you've mentioned your, your course, you've mentioned your yeah. blog. If someone wants to learn more from you, where can they go? Okay. So I have, thank you. I have a website, elishevelis.com, which is in the middle of being um, worked on, but it, it is up and running. Um, and, uh, and so there I'm trying to sort of collect all my pieces, but I have a, uh, I have an Instagram, I have Facebook, and I have a course called Sacred Not Secret, a religious family's guide to healthy, holy sexuality education. It's a project I've been working on for a while. I have my book, which is called Find Your Horizon of Healthy Thinking, Hack Your Thoughts, Improve Your Mood, a three-step technique to, uh, to better living. It has to do with healthier thinking. That's something that has gotten a lot more attention lately because <laughs> it's something that I think a lot of us are struggling. Even people who don't have chronic anxiety are feeling a little bit anxious and, and you know, given what's going on right now. Um, and um, yeah, and I have my blog. I, I blog on nefesh.org. Nefesh is the International Association of Orthodox Therapists. And, okay. Um, yeah. That's, that's all great. And we're going to link to all of that in the show notes so that everyone can access that. The last Thank thing you. that I want to ask you, Ali Sheva, is in your life and your work, in the way that you move through the world, what does it mean to you to make an impact? I really love that question. Um, I think that I want to be able, you know, whenever the end of my life is, I hope it's not for a long time, um, but I want to be able to know that I can look back and say that, feel that I made a meaningful difference in the lives of other people. I want to know that I alleviated suffering, um, maybe was able to inspire people. Um, I'm trying to continually evolve and grow into an, you know, ever better version of myself. And I, and I try to emanate energy and wisdom to help others do the same. That is fabulous. Thank you so much for coming on today, Ali Sheva. I really appreciate it. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening. I looked it up, and according to Google, a ziggurat is a rectangular stepped tower, sometimes surrounded by a temple. So there you go. Ali Sheva has tons of content out there. Check out the show notes to see it all with links. There's courses, there's books, lots of great stuff. You can access those by swiping up on the cover art. To hear more episodes, subscribe or head over to impactfashionnyc.com slash blogs slash podcast. While you're there, feel free to check out what's new in the world of size-inclusive modest fashion. If you enjoyed this episode and want to help more people hear it, leave a review or a quick rating. It'll make my day. The episode art was designed by Michelle Moses. Original music composed by Nissan Fetman. This episode was produced and hosted by me, Rifki Itzkowitz. Catch me on Instagram and Facebook at impact.fashion.myc. As always, here's to making an impact together. <laughs>